Section 15 of The Red Lamp by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. September 1st. I dare say there is no type of investigation in which the grave, no pun here, is so mixed with the gay as in this particular psychic research on which we are at present engaged. For, let Halliday use it for such purposes as he will, to Jane, Edith, and Mrs. Livingston, it is a deadly serious matter. The reactions are peculiar. Jane accepts it stoically and without surprise. It is almost as though, from the beginning, she has known that it was to happen. But she is nervous. She has eaten almost nothing all day. Edith shows a peculiar and rather set-faced intensity. Whether she knows that something quite different lies behind it or only suspects it, I do not know. Halliday also is grave and quiet. He is less interested, however, in the manner of the sitting than in its dramatis personae. The list he has made out himself. Hayward, the two Livingstons, Jane, Edith, and himself. On my pointing out a slight omission, namely myself, he told me cheerfully that I belonged among the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes, anyhow, he said. You are to sit by the red lamp and make notes. I am particularly anxious to have notes, he added. On the other hand, Mrs. Livingston has entered into it with extraordinary zest. She appeared this afternoon, slightly wheezy with the heat, carrying a black curtain of some heavy material, and demanding a hammer and assistance before she was fairly out of her car. As it was apparently up to me to furnish both, I did so, but anything less conducive to a spiritual state of mind than the preparations which followed at the main house, it would be hard to find. To stand on a ladder in the heat and darkness of the den, and to nail up that curtain across a corner with no more ritual than if I had been hanging a picture, to place inside it a small table and a bell on it, while beside it leaned an old guitar, resurrected from the attic and minus two strings, struck me as poor psychological preparation for confronting the unknown. But we are curious creatures. The sun was low before we had finished, and as we sat resting from our labors, the dusk began to creep into the house. And with it came, self-created, of course, a sort of awe of that cabinet I had myself just made. It took on mystery. Behind its heavy folds almost anything might happen. It brooded over the room, tall and menacing, with folds that seemed to sway with some unseen life behind them. I left Mrs. Livingston placing chairs about a small table and went out into the air. The arrangements are now complete. Mrs. Livingston has brought over a phonograph with a collection of what appear to be most lugubrious records. She also promises Livingston, alive or dead. I left him sulking, she said, but he will feel better after he's had his dinner. And to this frivolous measure we start the night's proceedings. Notes made during first seance. September 1st, 11.15 p.m. Present, Jane, Edith, Hayward, the two Livingstons, Halliday, and myself. Livingston and Edith examining house. All outside doors locked and windows boarded. The red lamp on small stand in corner diagonally opposite cabinet and my chair beside it. 11.30 p.m. All was ready. Mrs. Livingston at end of table next to cabinet. On her left, Jane, Hayward, and Mr. Livingston. On her right, Halliday and Edith. A red silk handkerchief over lamp makes light very faint. I have started the phonograph according to instructions. I was right about it. It is playing. Shall we gather at the river? 11.45. Small raps on the table, and one strong one, like the blow of a doubled fist. 11.47. The table is moving, twisting about. It ceases, and the knocks come again. 11.50. The curtain of the cabinet seems to be moving. No one else has apparently noticed it. I have stopped the phonograph. 11.55. The curtain has blown out as far as Mrs. Livingston's shoulder. I'll see it. Edith says something has touched her on the right arm. To my inquiry, if anyone has relaxed his grip of the hand he is holding, no one has done so. Twelve o'clock. The bell inside the cabinet has been knocked from the table, with such violence that it rolls out into the room. Twelve ten. Nothing since the bell fell. Livingston has asked if less light is required, 
and by Knox the reply is, Yes, I have put out lamp. The following notes were made in the dark and are not very distinct. I have supplemented them from memory. All quiet since the last entry. There was a mouse apparently playing about in the library. Edith says that Jane seems to be in a sort of trance. She is breathing heavily. More raps, apparently on doorframe into library. I am cold, but probably nerves. There is a sense of soft movement in the library. The covers are rustling. The prisms of the chandelier can be heard. Edith says her chair is being slowly lifted. It has crashed to the floor. A hand has, apparently, run over the guitar strings. All complain of cold. I am alarmed about Jane. I notice the herbal odor again. No one else has, apparently. Note. At this point, Jane's breathing continuing labored, and my apprehension growing, I insisted on terminating the seance. September 2nd. Jane shows no ill effect from last night, and indeed appears to have no knowledge of the later phenomena. I think I must have fallen asleep, she said this morning. How silly of me. She has no idea of her entranced condition, and I have not told her. She accepts the idea of a second setting tonight, without enthusiasm, but apparently with the fatalistic idea that what must be must be. She took a little tea and toast this morning. As to what Halliday had hoped to discover, I am as completely in the dark as ever. On my decision to end the seance and on turning on the lights as I did without warning, the group was seen to be as it had been at the beginning, except that Mrs. Livingston's chair appeared to have been pushed back and was somewhat nearer the cabinet than before. Hayward, so far as I can tell, had not changed his position. His attitude throughout seemed to me to be one of polite but rather uneasy skepticism. Livingston, on the other hand, showed strong nervous excitement from first to last, but certainly never left the table. He is ill today, which is not surprising, but I understand the intention is to carry on the experiment without him tonight. Regarding the phenomena themselves, what can I do but accept them? Certainly they showed no connection with what Mrs. Livingston likes to call the spirit world. On the other hand, either they were genuine, or they showed an experience in trickery utterly beyond any member of our small group. And who would trick us, and why? Livingston was right, however, as to the psychological effect of the preliminaries. In spite of myself, they influenced me. The music, the low light followed by darkness, the strange and fearful expectancy of something beyond our ken, all added to the history of the house itself and its recent tragedy, had prepared us for anything. The billowing of the cabinet curtain was particularly terrible. Skeptic as I am, I had the feeling of some dreadful thing behind it, something one should not see, and yet somehow might see. Both Crawford and Cameron believe that certain individuals have the ability to project from their bodies rod-like structures of energy, invisible to the naked eye, but capable of producing levitations, raps, and other phenomena. They believe that these structures are utilized by outside spirits, or controls. My own conviction is that if such powers exist, they are not directed from outside, but by the medium's subconscious mind. In that case, of course, it is possible that Jane was the innocent author of last night's entertainment, Mrs. Livingston suggests that if we secure anything of interest tonight, I consult Cameron with a view to his joining us later on. Notes of seance held on evening of September 2nd. 1 a.m. Largely from memory, since all the later part was held without light, but made immediately following seance. Present, Jane, Edith, Hayward, Halliday, Mrs. Livingston, and myself. Livingston absent. I have moved lamp out from corner, and am now near door into hall. Doors from den and library into hall closed. Door into library open. 11.10. Table moves almost immediately. Edith says is rising from floor. It has risen, but one leg remains on floor. 11.15. All remove hands and table settles down. 11.20. Loud raps on table. Construed as demand for less light. Handkerchief thrown over lamp. Curtain of cabinet billows into room. Guitar overturned inside cabinet. 
All quiet now. No phenomena whatever for about ten minutes. Jane very quiet. Hayward feels her pulse, is fast but strong. Mrs. Livingston asks if too much light, and Rapp replies, Yes, I have put out the lamp. Note, from here on I was able only to jot down a word or two in longhand, the previous night's experiment of making stenographic notes in darkness having shown its practical impossibility. The following record I have since elaborated from memory. Bell and cabinet rings violently and is flung across room, striking door into hall. A small light, bluish-white about a foot above Jane's head, it shines for a moment and then disappears. It has flashed again near the fireplace. A fine but steady tattoo is being beaten apparently outside of the door to hall. A tap or two on metal, possibly the fender. Silence. Jane apparently in trance. The sound is extended to the library and there is movement there. The covers seem to be in motion as before. The prisms of chandelier tinkle like small bells. From where I sit I can see a small light of her bookcase in library. It is gone. The herbal odor again. Jane is groaning and moving in her chair. Mrs. Livingston and Hayward having trouble holding her hands. She calls, Here, here, sharply. Hayward says something has touched him on the shoulder. Something floated by me just now, he says. On the left, it touched my shoulder. A crash on the table. I notice the herbal odor once more. Silence again. Something is in the hall. It is groping its way along. It is at the door beside me. My notes end here. I had reached the limit of my endurance, and as the switch was beside me, I turned on the lights. As before, Mrs. Livingston's chair seemed somewhat nearer the cabinet. No other changes in position, except that Halliday had gone out to search hall and lower floor. The bell was on floor near door into hall, and lying on table, Smith's Everyday Essays. To the best of my knowledge, this book was in the library at the beginning of the seance. No signs of disturbance in library or hall to account for sounds I heard, but an unfortunate situation has arisen owing to Mrs. Livingston's failure to lock door from hall to drive. She had pushed the bolt, but as the door was not entirely closed, it had not engaged. We found this door standing open. This, however, although Hayward seems uneasy, hardly invalidates the extraordinary phenomena secured tonight. Jane exhausted, and Edith with her. September 3rd. I have seen Cameron, and he will come out. He has evidently been seriously ill, but it shows the dominance of the mental over the physical that he brushed aside my apologies and went directly to the matter in hand. But it is a curious thing to reflect that, a short time ago, it would have been I who was the skeptic and Cameron who would have been ranged on the other side. Today it was I who was excited, and Cameron who was to be convinced. This Edith of whom you speak, he said. How old is she? Twenty. A nervous type. Yes and no, not hysterical, if that's what you mean. Certain of the phenomena, too, seemed to puzzle him. The table levitation, the lights, and other manifestations were not unusual, he said, with a strong physical medium present, and this he imagined Jane to be. The book, however, particularly attracted his interest. Over my notes on that he sat thinking for some time. You say it crashed onto the table? At the last, yes, but Dr. Hayward, who was nearest the library door, says that after my wife called, here, he felt something pass his shoulder. Float past, is the way he puts it. He thinks it was the book, and that it dropped onto the table after that. About what you heard in the hall, was this hall dark? Yes, there were no lights anywhere in the house. You heard footsteps? No, it was like something feeling its way along. You know what I mean. Toward the end of the conference he leaned back and studied me through his glasses. What started you on this, Porter? He said. He did not remind me, although he might well have done so, that my previous attitude to him and his kind had been one of a sort of indifferent contempt. 
that during his entire time at the university I had never so much as set foot in his rooms, nor asked him into my house, that on the two or three times only when we had met I had taken no pains to hide my rejection of him and all that he stood for. But it was implied in his question, and I dare say I coloured. I told him, however, as best I could, and he smiled. I rather imagine, he said, that when we pass over our interest in this plane of existence is impersonal, we may hope to educate it as to what is beyond, but we hardly carry our desires for revenge with us. Of all that I had told him, however, the Evanston matter interested him most. Over the letter he sat for a long time, his heavy, almost hairless head sunk forward as he read and reread it. Carius, he said, what do you make out of it? A great deal, I told him, and detailed my discovery of the letter behind the drawer of the desk, and my theory as to old Horace Porter's death. I had brought that letter also, and he studied it as carefully as he had the other. The enormity of the idea, he repeated. That's a strong phrase, and he threatens to call in the police. Have you any notion as to what this idea may have been? Not the slightest, I said, frankly. I would like to keep this for a while, if you don't mind, he said at last. I have a medium here in town, but I forget, you don't believe in such things. I don't know what I believe, but you are welcome to it, of course. It was only after this matter of the letter that he finally agreed to come out the day after tomorrow. September 4th. The words, Making trouble, lately underscored on page 24 of Smith's Everyday Essays, are the key to Gordon's cipher. The entire sentence is, It is often the ingenuous, rather than the malicious, who go about the world making trouble. In a few hours, then, we shall have solved our mystery, or at least such portion of it as is locked in the diary. Read with this key, we have already translated the sentence I recorded here on the 22nd of August. Although we cannot interpret it without the context, it becomes, The GP stuff went big last night. In the same way, the scrap of paper found in my garage is now discovered to read, Smith, P24. Edith's single error lying in the number, which she had remembered as 28. Halliday suggests that the GP above may refer to George Pierce, but makes no attempt to explain the reference. Halliday's story of his discovery is interesting. Certain portions of the two seances he apparently accepts without comment save, It was the usual stuff, and lets it go at that, although usual is hardly the word I should myself use in that connection. But the book was, as I gather it, not the usual stuff. There was something about the way it came that night of the seance, he says, and makes a gesture. Mrs. Porter called it, and it came. Like a dog, he says, and watches me to be sure I am not laughing at him. However that may be, the book and the strange manner of its arrival in our midst had interested him, and he had spent some time over it. Thus he found where it belonged in the library, and tried to discover some significance in that, but there was none. I drew a blank there, he says. I examined the wall behind, but there was nothing. You see, it couldn't have been thrown in, it wasn't possible. And when Hayward said it touched him, both his hands were being held. In other words, he didn't put it there. All the time, I gathered, he was feeling extremely foolish. He would pause now and then in order to assure me that he felt a bit silly. He didn't believe in such things. When there was a natural phenomenon, there was a natural law to account for it. Maybe telekinesis, or whatever they called it. But there had to be some reason for that book, he says. I just sat down and went through it. He has taken the keywords to the city, and has just telephoned, 2 p.m., that the detective bureau has put a staff to work on it. It will be several hours, he said. It's slow work, but I'll be out with the sheets as soon as they've finished. September 5th. Too much exhausted today to make any coherent record. The four hours last night in the district attorney's office have worn me out. I have called off Cameron tonight for the same reason. The mystery seems to be increased rather than solved by the diary, by such portions at least as were read to me. And I do not understand the conditions under which I was questioned, nor the questions themselves. Good God, are they suspecting me again? Halliday is still in town. Later.
Edith has removed my anxiety as to Halliday's return. He has telephoned, and she has just brought me the message. He says you are not to worry, she reports. He is working with them on the case, and you will not be disturbed again. She looks pale, does Edith, and Jane is not much better. I have told Jane the whole matter. My absence last night had possibly prepared her, but the very confession that I had been subjected to what amounted to the third degree has roused her to a fury of indignation. How can they dare such a thing, she said. How can they even think it? It's their business to believe a man guilty until he proves his innocence, I reminded her. And Gordon thought it. You must remember that. For nothing is more clear to me today than that this diary of Gordon's, which Halliday himself carried to the police, has somehow incriminated me. End of section 15